two opposing candidates for governor of Utah recently went viral for doing something noticeably different. Here's this. They joined <laughs> forces to record a series of ads calling for civility. Take a look. I'm Chris Peterson. And I'm Spencer Cox. We are currently in the final days of campaigning against each other to be your next governor. And while I think you should vote for me. Yeah, but, but really you should vote for me. There are some things we both agree on. We can debate issues without degrading each other's character. We can disagree that joint ad by Spencer Cox and Chris Peterson really blew up, Sonia. Do you yeah. remember that? Yeah, no, I feel like I saw it hit local media in Utah, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then all of a sudden, it was everywhere. Yeah, that's a clip from when they were interviewed on Good Morning America, and people just love to point to it as an example of how Utah politics is different. I actually like to joke that Every article I read from a national outlet that parachutes into Utah politics to provide, might I add, a very unnuanced take of how things work here, they all start by talking about that ad. Yeah, it's a shiny example of the Utah way. Things are going so well in Utah. What is your secret? And uh, I said, well, it's the Utah way. I think part, part of the Utah way is it's an inclusive process. You know, let's let's just take a moment to celebrate the Utah way further. I think that's that's a that's a Utah way is to do it right. The Utah way. It's this idea that Utah politics is nice and civil and collaborative. I'm Emily Means. And I'm Sonia Hudson. On this episode of State Street, we're gonna be digging into whether the Utah way is a real thing. And surprise, surprise, Sonia, it's not a simple yes or no. It never is. It never is. It's actually a bit more complicated. We'll hear from three people with very different experiences with the Utah way. We've got an insider, an outsider, and someone who's managed to find a middle ground in all of this. First up, we've got Natalie Gochner. Natalie's been in Utah politics in some form or other for more than 30 years. She's advised three Utah governors. She worked for the Salt Lake Chamber of Commerce. And now she's the executive director of the Kemsey Gardner Policy Institute at the University of Utah. So Natalie knows exactly where she stands within the political establishment. You know, I'm very much an insider when it comes to what we do here. So Natalie definitely knows how the Utah way plays out in making policy here because she's done it a lot. Oh, yeah. And Natalie put it like this. I've come to know the Utah way as our collaborative spirit, the way we capitalize on our networks of trust, our commitment to the greater good to accomplish really important things. OK, let's take it back to 2010 when Natalie was working at the Chamber of Commerce. The Republican Party at a national level and also in Utah's neighboring state, Arizona, was taking a really hardline stance on immigration. That controversial immigration bill, which has set off a fiery debate in Arizona and around the land. A new poll shows the majority of Americans, 59 percent, support Arizona's tough law requiring police to check the documentation of anyone they suspect might be an illegal immigrant. Well, state senators gave final legislative approval yesterday to Senate Bill 1070 which is being called the toughest immigration law in the country. Arizona had passed an enforcement-only immigration law. It was mean-spirited. It was hurtful to the economy, hurtful to families. So at this time, Natalie was working as the chief operating officer at the Salt Lake Chamber of Commerce. She didn't want Utah to follow this same path. 
So Natalie told me a lot of groups were on board with taking a different approach to immigration. There were faith leaders, business leaders like the Chamber of Commerce, law enforcement, also the head of the Sutherland Institute, which is a conservative think tank here in Utah. They all got together to try to figure out how to stop Utah from going this same route as Arizona. All of these groups started talking. And through those conversations came up with the idea that let's let's come up with five principles to guide Utah's immigration discussion. And let's give that to the legislature as a an expression of our uh, feelings, of our goodwill. And, and that became the Utah Compact. So the Utah Compact's basically trying to reflect what people like to think of as Utah values when it comes to immigration. Right. And the principles they came up with for this compact were, number one, keeping families together. Number two, recognizing that immigrants play an important role in our state's economy. Number three, immigration is a federal issue, so it needs a federal solution. Four, local law enforcement should focus on criminal activity, not civil violations, which is what crossing the border illegally is. And the last principle is be welcoming and kind to immigrants. We went up to the state capitol, uh, the grounds up there, had a little podium, had a lot of people there. It was a beautiful day. And the spirit among the crowd was just powerful. We knew we were doing something important for our state. And then voluntarily people would come up from the crowd. I was one of those who signed it. And I just remember grabbing that pen and just thinking, I want to do this. And before you knew it, we had the ability for people to sign online. And then it just started getting lots of signatures, hundreds of signatures. And it felt so good. (laughs) So this was, I call these breakthrough moments in public policy. It's been my experience, Emily, that over time when we have these breakthrough moments, somehow you feel it in the environment. And that's, for me, code for the sun comes out. The Utah Compact made national news in a really good way. And it had these tangible impacts back home because Utah ended up passing a package of immigration bills That was actually considered pretty moderate for a GOP state. Definitely for a GOP state, though. Like, this is not liberal legislation by any stretch of the imagination. would never have passed in a place, say, like California. But, Emily, I wasn't living in Utah yet at this time. How did just regular Utahns feel about the Utah Compact and the immigration laws that Utah eventually passed? Did the compact do anything to change people's minds and pull them closer to the Utah way or Utah values when it came to immigration? Yeah. So polling actually shows that public opinion was changed by the compact. The percentage of people who strongly favored Arizona type legislation dropped by nine percent after the compact was signed. So some people nationally thought of the Utah compact as a potential model for federal immigration reform, which hasn't happened yet. Here's Natalie again. And it became the mantra that we're going to do it differently in Utah, that we're going to be more balanced, that we're going to care for one another. So the Utah Compact is held up as a shining example of the Utah way. 
But who actually gets to be involved in those discussions? When you ask who gets a seat at the table, well, everyone does. We don't always, you know, execute (laughs) uh, perfectly. But the spirit of the Utah Way is that you listen to people that have different life experiences. And out of listening to them, you gain respect for their point of view. And you take a little step closer to them. When people don't feel a part of the table, then the process isn't working. That's a pretty rosy outlook on how things work here. And I'm sure for Natalie, like that is her experience working in politics. But there are also definitely people that don't feel like they have a seat at the table, that they don't get to participate in the Utah way. Yeah, you're right about that, Sonia. And coming up, we'll hear from one person who doesn't think politics always works along the Utah way. It's only open when the power structure wants it to be. And according to her, that power structure has everything to do with money. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to State Street. We'll be right back. Support for KUER comes from the local businesses and organizations that sponsor our programming. We're proud to partner with the community in support of local news and information that thousands of Utahns depend on every day. KUER sponsors reach public radio listeners on the air and online with information about the goods and services they provide. To learn more about sponsorship opportunities with KUER, visit SponsorKUER.org. You're listening to State Street. I'm Sonia Hudson. I'm Emily Means. So, Sonia, as you pointed out, not everyone buys into the Utah way. Dita Seed has been involved in public policy in Utah since the 80s. She's an activist, she's a former Salt Lake City Council member, and now she works with the Center for Biological Diversity, which is an environmental advocacy organization that focuses on protecting wildlife and plants. So a big part of her work there is opposing the Inland Port. The Inland Port is the story of a power play. Just as a refresher, the Inland Port is basically a hub for transporting goods from outside Utah and across the state. Basically, a distribution center is another way you could describe it. And Emily, you and I and loads of other KUER reporters have spent years covering it and all the controversy around it because it's a really big deal here. Basically, it's planes, trains and automobiles along the lines of diesel trucks. And it's planned for the northwest part of Salt Lake City next to the airport, and also next to the Great Salt Lake. So when you go out there, it's a weird mix of undisturbed landscape, relatively undisturbed. And, you know, you see birds. There's a herd of antelope out there, which is just amazing to think about, that there are antelope in our city. But then the part that's being developed is just a hellscape. There's fugitive dust coming up from the construction sites and construction equipment, and, you know, the earth is ripped to shreds. Here's what the big conflict with the Inland Port basically boils down to. You've got the state, which says this is going to be huge for the economy. It'll bring in lots of jobs and money to the state. It'll also be big for the state's development. And then you have the Salt Lake City government and people like Dita who are worried about the environmental impacts. And they also say that this is a land grab from Salt Lake City. 
Westside communities are particularly worried about the impacts because that's where the port will be. That's where a lot of low-income people live and people of color have traditionally lived in Salt Lake City. And Dita says when she first heard about the port and its hearing at the legislature in 2018, her activism instincts really kicked in. I was reading the newspaper and I was horrified, outraged. My immediate thought was, we have to do something about this. We can't let this happen. And that organizing led to the formation of a group called the Stop the Polluting Port Coalition. Wow, Sonia, what do they want? Their demands are pretty obvious. They don't want the port and they think it's polluting. Makes sense. Dita says the state hasn't listened to their demands or even really entertained the thought of them. They've made it clear that they don't care what we think, that they're just going to barrel ahead with their project without addressing public concern. So, you know, this is not, there's nothing Utah way-ish about any of that. Dita says people opposing this project have showed up to just about every meeting the Port Authority has had to give public comment and share those concerns. We are here asking for answers. We are not here as a roadblock. We are here as concerned citizens who live and breathe the same air you do. Anyway, here we are at another public hearing where we find ourselves needing to give comment and feedback about something about which we have limited information. But Sonia, those concerns are coming from just regular people in the community. Dita says that's not super convincing to the Port Authority. Who gets left out of the Utah way are people who are lower income marginalized communities, people who have fewer resources or don't know how to organize. And what happens when some people don't feel heard, Sonia? They get loud. They get loud. They make noise, which is exactly what happened at a protest in 2019. There was a demonstration against the port at the Salt Lake Chamber of Commerce building. There's this guy named Derek Miller, and he is the president of the Chamber of Commerce. He was also the chair of the Port Authority at the time of this protest. So there were a bunch of just regular people in the community there and groups like the Rose Park Brown Berets, which is a community organization in Salt Lake's Rose Park neighborhood. Dita says she didn't organize this protest, okay? But she was there. Word came that a group of activists had chained themselves together in a circle in Derek Miller's office. And so the whole crowd that had been listening to speeches then moved across the street to the Chamber of Commerce building, and things got pretty chaotic. I did not actually go into the building. I was on the outside. But the Salt Lake City Police Department descended, and it actually became violent on the part of the police. And Emily, that protest generated a ton of controversy. Yeah, there was the police saying it was the protesters who started the violence and the protesters saying it was the police. And we had Governor Gary Herbert calling the protest borderline terrorism. All around, it was a pretty big news event, which Dita says did help bring a lot of attention to this cause opposing the port. But it didn't lead to any breakthrough moments. 
there was no sun coming out. There that was day. no sun coming out that day. Because there was nobody on the other side that wanted to take that step. The Port Authority board and the governor and others just instead of saying, we want to talk to you about your concerns, they created a line and said, you're unacceptable people. Clearly, there's a massive divide between this group of activists and community members and the legislature slash Inland Port Authority Board. And, you know, for some people, politics ends up with the sun shining and signing a compromise outside the Capitol. Birds are chirping. Exactly. The whole shebang. But for some, it ends with chaining yourself to a desk. And I'm kind of wondering, like, have they moved past the point of being collaborative if you're at a point where you feel like you have to chain yourself to a desk to gain any sort of recognition or feel heard? I mean, how do you move forward from there when there's that much conflict between the two groups? Yeah. And I asked Dita about that, if she would even be willing to engage in the quote unquote Utah way, if that was an option that was made to her. What would the ideal outcome be then? Because part of the Utah way from what I've read and what I've heard from other people I've talked to is compromise. But when you're up against, we don't want the port and we want the port, what is the compromise? Well, that's what people would have to talk about. But just to give you a really simple example, we can't even, they're not even willing to give us a traffic study or a real analysis of what the air quality impacts would be. So, you know, they'd have to really start in a good faith way saying, okay, we're going to look at this information. So D2C has had basically the complete opposite experience with the Utah way than Natalie Gochner's had. I think that's fair to say. Here's how Dita defines the Utah way. What it means to me is really more symbolic than real. So when I hear the Utah way, I think its intended meaning is that we work together across boundaries, across differences to solve problems. But more often than not, what I see is not the Utah way. It's the entrenched power interests of the state deciding what they want to do and then going to do it regardless of what input they're getting from other places. Dita's perspective is that the Utah way is good in theory, but that ideal way of doing politics doesn't always happen. She says not all politics happen in this quote unquote Utah way when there are people involved who don't already have power. Okay, but there are definitely examples of a middle ground here between everyone can be a part of the Utah way of doing politics and only the powerful get to be at the table. And I've definitely seen that up on the Hill. I talked to someone with a slightly different perspective who does kind of fit in that middle ground, Troy Williams. Yeah, I see the Utah way as a lofty aspiration that, when applied properly, can be powerful and transformative. Troy is the executive director of Equality Utah, which lobbies the state legislature on behalf of LGBTQ plus Utahns. He very much does have a seat at the table. And Troy says that one example of the Utah way working for the LGBTQ community is the so-called Utah Compromise in 2015, not to be confused with the Utah Compact that we talked about earlier. 
the Utah Compromise of 2015 included LGBTQ people in the state's existing non-discrimination laws, and it also included religious views in those laws. Basically, you couldn't be fired from your job or evicted from your housing for being LGBTQ or for your religious beliefs. It was a remarkable moment when we decided that the culture war dividing us and them, the LGBT community and communities of faith, was false. That we could actually sit around the table and figure out a way forward. The groups they brought around that table were Equality Utah, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the Republican and the Democratic Party. At that negotiating table, they figured out a piece of legislation that they could all get on board with. You have to be willing to see the humanity of of the people that are your quote-unquote opponents. And for me personally, I just realized that if I wanted to be successful in this work, I couldn't see people that had different points of view as my enemy. I had to always, in my mind, picture them as my future ally. Emily, I think one of the best examples of this is that pretty much every year, Equality Utah will sponsor a booth at the Republican State Convention. We put on our suits and we put up our big gay banners and we sit and we have conversations with conservatives people who may not agree with us on almost anything. But inevitably, when you do that, 75% of the people that you engage like, like are friendly and actually want to talk to you and are excited that we're there. Those 25% that may be a bit aggressive and want to challenge and fight with you, when that happens, I often stop the conversation as, as it begins to escalate. I said, hey, I know you and I don't agree on marriage equality, for example. But let's just stop for a moment and talk about what do we agree on? What are the things that we have in common? Do you work? I work too. Do you have a family? I have a family too. There are other LGBTQ activists who criticize Troy for this buddy-buddy approach he takes. Some LGBTQ people say that he's betraying the people he represents, And watching him be friendly with people who are trying to pass legislation that potentially harms people in their community Mm -hmm. really hurts them. And it erodes some people's trust in him. Particularly during the legislative session, I see that all over Twitter. And I asked Troy about this and he says, look, we're protecting the LGBTQ plus community by that activism that we're doing. It works. We're moving forward. Not that everything's perfect and not that there isn't more work to do. But attacking each other and just criticizing each other on social media, boy, how brave are you? If you can go on and send a mean tweet at a lawmaker or an advocacy organization, you know, that's not activism. That's just, you know, trying to appease someone's ego. And it's, it's not effective. So the Utah way is definitely a thing, but it's an ideal that isn't always reached every time, right? Actually, Emily, what I think is so interesting also is these theories about where this idea of the Utah way, this collaborative spirit comes from. And I've heard over and over again in my reporting that a lot of it actually comes from the dominance of Mormonism here. Yeah, well, the state was created by religious refugees. So the thought is that they empathize with marginalized people particularly immigrants and refugees. 
Although not everyone from marginalized groups feels that that is true for them. So in the end, it's a little more complicated than that joint ad by Chris Peterson and Spencer Cox when they were running for governor against each other. It's all about relationships and power. If you have power, you're good to go. Welcome to the table. The Utah way is easy for you, like Natalie Gochner working on the Utah Compact. If you don't have power, you need to work really hard on building relationships with people you disagree with, or in some cases are even trying to pass a law that will harm you or your community. And seeing them as potential allies can maybe be a way forward. And speaking of power, next time on State Street, we're going to be digging into the huge power that the Republican Party has in Utah, how that impacts Democrats and what laws make it onto the books and ultimately impact all of our lives. That does it for this episode of State Street. I'm Emily Means. And I'm Sonia Hudson. The show was edited by Caroline Ballard and produced by Roddy Nickpour. Chelsea Naughton is the podcast executive producer, and Palak Jaiswal is our digital producer. Our news director is Elaine Clark. State Street is a production of KUER. I didn't mean to, like, undermine your authority um, as a journalist. <laughs> when, I, when did you undermine my authority as a journalist? At the beginning, you were like, I love when journalists provide oh, this un-nuanced yeah. take. And I was like, well, you just have lots of feelings about journalists parachuting in. I do. They do a bad job. From KUER.